morning, Austin Oaks Church. Yes, happy post 4th of July. Anybody on a food hangover? Can I get an amen? I, th- I, I had some brisket. There you go. Got it out of the way. Yeah, every, 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 I'm trying to get that in every Sunday. Just letting you know. That's how we're rolling here. Hey, glad, glad to, um, to have you if you're a guest, first time with us. My name is Brandon, lead pastor. We want to let you know that we're a church that is simply about Jesus, and that's why we're in this series. We're going through the letter of Colossians, understanding that everything is all about Jesus. Everything comes from him. Everything was created by him and for him, and we are not ashamed to be simply about him because we believe that when you encounter Jesus, it changes everything. So we're going to jump right into this passage this morning because there is a lot that I want to cover this morning that I believe is important for us as a church. And so um, I want us to land on this phrase, okay? So I'm going to ask you to say with me in just a moment, but this is going to be basically the main point of today's sermon. And I want you to memorize this. I want you to understand this because when you start to walk in this truth, how this principle works out, I promise you, you'll begin to experience more freedom and the fruit that God promises us as followers of Jesus Christ, okay? You are, so now be. Say it with me. You are, so now be. Let's do it one more time. You are, so now be. Okay. This is your identity. You are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have received him as your Lord and Savior and you died with him and you were buried with him and you were risen again from death, alive with him now, this is your identity. You are a new creation. You are. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to attain it. You don't have to maintain it. It is fact. This is who you are are. You are, so now be. This is where Paul would say things like in the letter of Romans, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin, but now alive in Christ. This is a fundamental shift. And as we've been studying this letter in Colossians, Paul has been making it so clear that it's by grace alone that you are saved. It's through Jesus Christ. It's not by works. It's not by being good enough. It's not by how religious you are. It's not by how many times a month you attend church. It's not how you dress. It's not about denomination. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about any of that. It's about the simple fact that Jesus came. He took on flesh. He took and paid our debt, nailed it to the cross. He paid that with his own blood. He died for us so that we could have life, regardless of how we act. So that you could be a new creation. So that you could walk and live in this newness of life. That's who you are. So now be. Act in accordance to this. This is such a radical reality. You are loved, so act loved. You are forgiven, so act forgiven. You don't have to try to earn God's love. You are loved. God is good. There's nothing that you can do to change that, either for the better or for the worse. Now, the same is true on the flip side. If you are a new creation and you have freedom with God and freedom from sin, that means the old is completely severed. This reality is a radical reality where the old life 
is gone. It's not just put away in a box, on a shelf somewhere. It's not like slowly fading over time. It is a radical cut from your life. This is a powerful reminder. The old life is gone. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. That's who you are. That's who you are. So now be. Act in accordance to that. Now, we've said this many times here at Austin Oaks Church, that belief determines behavior. So if you believe that Jesus is all in all, if you believe he is the preeminent one, if you believe that he's the one who took on sin and death, conquered it, paid for your sins, paid off your debt by his life on the cross, listen, that ought to determine how you live. And so anytime we see Paul or Peter or another um, Bible writer talking about a beautiful theological image, specifically the gospel, it's always followed up with an act of how we should now live, which is the next step here. If belief determines behavior, listen, you got to understand that theology is always followed by a way to live it out. You can't just go, oh yeah, Jesus is good and Jesus died for me and he gave me freedom and he forgiven me and all these kind of things without a change in how you live. Because this isn't just moral modification where you just become a little bit of a better person. Some of your bad attitudes and bad habits are gone and your church attendance is going to increase. That is not what being a Christian is. It is a radical separation from the old life. That's the theology, which means there's a whole new way of living. Not to earn something. Not to prove something. And not to gain something. It's a whole new way of living based upon who you are in Jesus Christ. This whole letter paints this beautiful Christology. This is Jesus. This is what he has done. Religion cannot revive you. Following certain religious holidays will not revive you. None of these things can do it. Legalism can't do it. There's never good enough. All these things will always fall short. In fact, it's so ridiculous. Our own human efforts to try to be right with God is as equivalent to putting a Band-Aid on your chest when you're having a heart attack. Because that will help. But yet we think that when it comes to spirituality with God, that if I try to do certain things, it will make me right. And if I continue to do certain things, I will earn something. But that's not the reality. You are alive in Jesus. You are complete in Jesus. You have everything you need for life and godliness in Jesus. He is your life. You are, so now be. Now, before we get into the passage this morning, I want us to understand this. We act, in other words, the way we live now as a follower of Jesus is not to be something. We're not trying to like be something or earn something or to prove something. If that's the case, that's legalism. That's the old life. Rather, we're acting because of we already are. That is a fundamental difference legalism, our own efforts are trying to earn or prove or to become something. But the reality is, as a new creation in Christ, we are doing it because of who we already are. You are living out of a position that is fully yours now. Does that make sense? 
sort of, it'll make sense. I promise you. Colossians chapter 3. Now, I want to give you a heads up on this because this passage is not going to be one of those passages where you're going to walk out of here and you're going to go, whoa, I'm so excited to follow Jesus. This was so good. And he's, you know, I'm super motivated. This is going to be one of those passages where it's going to get real close to home. Okay. This is one of those passages that if it doesn't make you squirm, okay, if it doesn't like challenge you right now where you're sitting, I'm telling you, you're not being honest with yourself because Paul is going to hit some issues that I know we all wrestle with, we all struggle with. And you got to remember, he's writing to a group of believers who understood the gospel, understood Jesus, and understood that it's not by what they've done, rather than it's all by what he has done. And so he's speaking to them. He's saying, listen, if the old is gone, there's a new way of living. And what he's going to say should be a serious challenge for us this morning. So let's look at this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. These first three words are enough for this morning. Put to death. We could just stop right there. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put to death. Paul has zero interest in laying out an ethic just so we can talk about it and debate about it and wonder if it still applies or not today. He's not writing this just to go, oh, this, this would be a good sermon someday. This would be a great Bible study to talk about what this all means. He's writing this to talk about what a new life in Jesus ought to be about. I mean, it's one thing. We, we love, I'm, I'm just, let's just be honest, we love to talk about God's love. We love to talk about God's goodness. We love to talk about God's faithfulness. We love to talk about all the things that make us feel good. When we come to these passages that deal with sinless, isn't it tempting to go, oh, put to death sexual morality. Oh, let's go to verse 12. <laughs> it says compassion. I like compassion. Let's read about compassion. It's hard to get to these spots. He's writing to a group of Christians who are new creations, and he wants them to understand something. The new life, your new identity, is not compatible with what is already dead. And he tells them clearly, put it to death. I mean, this isn't a friendly statement. I mean, this is a radical statement. Like, we got to, like, slow down here. Put to death, in other words, in the Greek, if you were to study this, is basically saying, murder it. Think about that. Put to death whatever is earthly, whatever earthly desire is in you. That's hard. That's hard. Put it to death. It's radical 
language. You got to understand that who you are in Jesus calls for far more than just getting rid of some bad attitudes, some bad behaviors, some bad things, and just have better church attendance. It is a whole new way of living. Now, I was trying to think of the best way to say it, and I was thinking this. I was like, this describes us really well. The gospel is radical to bring us new life, right? It, it, it liberates us. It gives us the freedom and the joy that everything that God created us to have. But at the same time, it is radically violent to the old life. Put it to death. Like have no association with it. This is not like put it in your pocket and forget that you have it. This is not like, you know, okay, kill some bad habits and hang on to some or put it in a tote and on a bin and a top shelf in the garage, put it away some other time and we'll pull it back out some season. This is, it's killed. You got to kill it. When it comes to any of the earthly desires inside of us, this is the only command we have in how to deal with it. Kill it. Your identity is not compatible with that old life. It's already dead. You are a new creation. So now act in accordance to that new creation. This is a powerful thought. Martin Luther, he writes it this way, and I love the way he describes this. He says that the process as described is not a matter of gradually changing the old into something better. Like when you're following Jesus, it's not your old life is just changing in varying degrees. Like some of the old habits and old patterns and the old addictions and things. It's not just changing that slightly. When you became a Christian, that was killed. That old life is buried and you are risen with Christ in newness of life. So as we walk this out here on earth, we do this progressively actualizing the already existing new creation. You are a new creation. This is another way of saying being sanctified or being transformed or being renewed. We continue to work this out. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that we are to work out our salvation. We don't work out our salvation to earn our salvation or to prove that we are saved. We are called to work it out. In other words, walk in the reality of what is already true of you. That is our call. And so the only command we have when it comes to these earthly desires that are tethered to the old life is to kill it. And to kill things is not easy. It's not easy at all. And my wife is going to be really mad at me for sharing this. And it just came to my mind. This is going to be really funny. It's going to get me in trouble. So like killing things is hard. We had this like, we had a staff Christmas party. And someone, we did a white elephant thing. And someone gave someone a, a betta fish. You know, those little goofy fish apparently are fighting. They left it on my desk. And I thought, hey, I'll just keep it for my kids. My wife wanted me to kill it. I didn't want to kill it. And she didn't want to kill it. So she thought the most humane way of doing it was really hard was to put it in a Ziploc bag and run it over with the van. It was hard to do. It's the same thing with your sin life. I don't know if that made any sense at all, but it was a good story for me. Your old life has to be killed, but it's hard. How many of you, now, how many of you struggle with killing old behaviors and old patterns and old ways of thinking? It's hard, isn't it? It's like trying to get rid of an old pair of jeans that you know you shouldn't be wearing anymore. 
How many of you have clothing that you know you just should just throw away? Right? Either it's jeans that don't fit, but you think someday they're going to fit, or they're just so old that they got a bunch of holes in it, or you got shirts that permastink. Anybody have shirts that permastink? My wife lets me know I have like five shirts that have permastink on them, and I'm still convinced that they don't. Right? Like they should just be thrown away. They should be done. But it's hard to get rid of the old things. And let's just be honest for a moment. Let's just be honest. It's hard to get rid of them because we don't really want to. It's hard to get rid of the old life. I mean, we say we want to, but I think sometimes when push comes to shove, I and mean, if we weren't to deceive ourselves, the reality is we don't want to. And believer, beloved, I'm telling you, if you are a new creation, anything that's connected to the old life is not compatible with who you are in Jesus. I was thinking about this this morning, and I was reminded about when I, when I my pre-Christian days, when I was trying to quit smoking cigarettes, which was the hardest thing I've ever went through in my life. And I remember how many times I would deceive myself. Like I would have this cigarette and I would say, this is the last one. I, I, this is the last one and I'm not going to do it anymore. And so then I would totally lie to myself and hide the rest of the pack thinking that I wouldn't remember where I hit it. <laughs> like I wanted to, but I really didn't want to. And I think if we were honest, you can think about that earthly desire that you have, that you know you shouldn't have, and that you haven't put it to death because you just don't want to. We need to be honest, right? Go back to verses one through four of chapter three. Set your heart and your mind on things above where Christ is. He is your life. He paid for it all. This new life is not compatible with anything of the old. So kill it. Put it to death. Be done with it. It's hard. So Paul, what he's going to do is he's going to hit on two what I call sin hubs. He's going to hit on two major sin issues that are rampant in every generation, in every church, in every culture at all time. And each of these hubs have many different branches of sin that come underneath them. They're not, like, like, this is not the total package. There's other sins that are there. But he was letting them know of a few things that could very much ruin and distort that image of Jesus in our new creation. Look at this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He's going to hit two main camps. Sexual immorality, which is sin hub number one, impurity, passion, evil desire, those are all part of the sexual immorality sin. But the second one is covetousness, which is idolatry. What he's speaking about is greed. He's saying, put these to death. And he hits it. Sexual sin and greed. Folks, these two sin issues run amok in the church. And I have grown convinced that one of the main reasons why it happens is because the church doesn't talk about them much. Because it gets too close to home. We don't want to talk about sexual sin, right? But here's the reality. If you don't talk about it here, that culture out there, the world out there, has no problem talking about it. It will disciple you 
more than you realize. It will influence your kids. It will influence the generation. It will do it. So it's like we need to speak up on it. In fact, let's just say it. Sex is good. God created it. Sin distorted what is good and turned it into a bad thing, but God can redeem it into a good thing if it's used in its right context. And so we ought to be talking about the other issue that is running amok in the church that the church doesn't want to talk about. Yes, it's money. These are issues that cause so many issues. Like these are two sin issues that are talked about a lot in the New Testament. A lot. Put to death sexual immorality, which is tangible, physical, outward acts of sexual sin. Then it starts talking about the internal stuff, the impurity, the lustful thoughts, the evil desires and passions that sit inside your mind and your heart, which actually is where the sin begins because it doesn't like just all of a sudden happen out here. It conceives first in here and then it like it gives birth to sin out there. He's like, listen, you just got to be done with it you got to put it to death because a sexual sin is not compatible with Christian behavior. Now, this isn't an old-fashioned or archaic type of thing. This isn't like old news. This is the best way to live, period. I remember when I was a college student. I'm not a college student. I remember when I was a college student, but when I was a college pastor— 99%, and I don't know where I come up with that number, but it felt like 99% of every single college student that I ever had in in that ministry struggled with sexual sin. I mean, they were 18 to 25 years old. And they all understood the world they were in, and they were all wrestling with it, and they were open to talking about it. And so we would always discuss it because we knew if we didn't, there was a void there, and then the culture would speak right into it. Then when I became a senior pastor, I realized that, yes, probably almost 99% of the adults in the church also struggle with sexual sin. However, they're reluctant to talk about it. I know one of the main areas that takes men out of ministry, men out of serving, men out of influence, is shame and guilt. And usually that shame and guilt is connected to sexual sin. We should be a community where we can talk about it. We should be a community where we're able to bring it all into the light and experience the grace because this is the reality. We are to radically deal with it. We are to put it to death. I remember people... College students, they still do it. Like even like couples who are engaged, they would come to me and ask this question. Pastor Brandon, how far is too far? My answer is if you're asking that question, it's too far. If you're uneasy with it, it's too far. Yeah, but Brandon, can we live with each other even if we're not married? I mean, we're not doing anything. I go, listen, I'm not trying to be old-fashioned. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, because a Christian is not about ourselves. We're not living for ourselves. We're not thinking about our own rights. We're not being entitled. We're thinking about the other. And so the Bible says in Ephesians 5, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. So if you're living with each other, yes, you might be pure, awesome. But is there a hint of it to someone who doesn't know Jesus looking at your life? Do you know the only command we have in dealing with sexual sin is found in 1 Corinthians 6, and it says, flee from it. Flee from it. Flee, run. That's the biblical wisdom for you when it comes to dealing with sexual sin. Run away. 
Don't stand there and stare at it and think you're strong enough. Run away. It will wreak havoc on your life. So listen, I want to encourage you. If this is an area of struggle, and I'm not going to get into all the specifics of all the different sins and all that kind of stuff that are packaged in that, because I think you know what they are. If that is something you are wrestling with, put it to death first. Begin to confess it. Get it. Talk to someone. Share it. Let God speak his grace and his love and his healing into it. Listen, you're not alone. You've got, look, I'm going to lean in a little bit, okay? If you're struggling with pornography, confess it. I, I, it is dangerous. I, I've dealt with people who said it's not a big deal because I'm not married. When I get married, I will deal with it wrong. It programs your brain more than you realize, and those things carry with you. Sexual sin is the only sin that is caused against the body, and it causes deep damage deep in our hearts more than we realize. And as a Christian, we are to be about the other. We are to be loving. We are to be responsible. And when we act out this way, we are being selfish. Put it to death. Put it to death. And then he talks about putting to death greed or covetousness, wanting more than what you already have not being content with what you have, looking at a neighbor or someone else's car or house or clothing or job or whatever, and then just being mad at them saying, they don't deserve it, I deserve it, that should be mine. That's greed and that's sin and that's idolatry. I mean, these two things are huge in our hearts. Jesus, oftentimes, he would make this, this call to money and God. He's like, you can't serve God and mammon. You just can't do it because right where your treasure is, if you follow the path, that's where your heart is. And you, can't, you don't have the capacity to love both. It's either one or the other. And as a new creation, to be caught up in greed is not compatible with who you are. Here's a good way to test greed. You ready? Because <laughs> we love this. This is fun, isn't it? Here, here's a great way to test greed. What happens in here and in here when money is talked about? Let's just, not in the context of church. Let's just say you're just talking about money. What happens in your head and in your heart? Anxious? Stressed? Like, I don't have enough. I want more. Okay, let's make it a little bit more closer to home in a church. Like, what happens when a church talks about money and generosity? What happens? Like, these are things that challenge us. Like, the rich young ruler, when he came to Jesus, he's like, what, do, what, do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, what does the law say? And he goes, well, I've done this and this and this and this. And he's like, awesome. Give away everything you have. And then you'll have riches. And Jesus hit, hit his heart because he knew that wealth was his issue. And he couldn't do it. He got up and walked away. 
Jesus knows right here. And as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, if God is good, listen, church, these things are for our good. They're for our joy. They're for our benefit. This is how the community ought to be living. If there's sexual sin or greed in your life, put it to death. Put it to death. And he continues in verse 6 and 7. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming, which I'm going to come back to. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. This word, put them away, is not like, again, put it in a box and put it on the shelf. This is like, kill it. Be done with it. Be done with anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Anger is a natural emotion. He's not saying don't feel angry because you're going to feel angry. You're going to struggle with sexual temptation. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the issue of lust, which is dwelling on that temptation. He's not talking about the desire to want more. You're going to. It's just how do you handle it? He's not talking about like don't get angry. You're going to get angry. It's how you deal with it. Don't let that anger start to lead you into sin, to sit there and fester and become like a cancer that eventually just blows up. And it goes into slander and malice and gossip and, and staring at people when you pass them on 290 because they're driving really slow and you want them to see your disgust. I don't do that. <laughs> Put it away. That's how the world is. This is not what is true of being a follower of Jesus. This is not compatible with being a new creation because we are to reflect Jesus. In Romans 4, it says that his kindness leads to repentance. He's calling us to love our enemies, to return a blessing for a curse. If someone strikes you, turn the cheek and let them strike you again. Go the extra mile. This is the ethic to love because it reflects Jesus who was on the cross, nailed, and yet said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. He was justified to be angry. He could have slandered them. Absolutely, sure. But that's not right. He chose to love them. Put it away. Do not lie. At the heart of lying is just basically taking advantage of someone for your own gain. Either that's to cover up a sin or to save face or whatever, to manipulate. That's why we lie. And that's not congruent with the Christian ethic of a new creation in Christ. Put it away. That's the old way. Now you walk in newness of life. You've got to put these things to death. It's done. Do not lie to another, seeing, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. It's a process of renewal. It's a process of renewal. And I was thinking about this the other day. And I was just like, how come... Like, because this is something I wrestle with. Like, okay, I understand I'm a new creation. I'm, I understand that this is dead. But how come it still feels like sin has power over me? How come it feels like I still go back to some of these things? And I was like, when you cut off a, a branch from a, a thriving tree, 
that branch which is cut off, basically set out to die, still lives for a little bit, doesn't it? But the further removed it is from that life source, it loses its influence and it becomes dead. That's kind of this idea where Paul's like saying, it's like, listen, you think carefully, you consider yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the, long, the more you get to know him, the more you reflect him, this will lose its power over you. And you're going to be renewed more and more and more in the image of your creator of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful promise that we have. All of these sins, sexual sin and greed and anger and lying, they just create barriers between people. That's what they do. They distort the beauty of the gospel and they continue to put up all these barriers. And that's why Paul goes in verse 11, he's like, listen, there is not Greek or Jew. There's no religious barrier, circumcised and uncircumcised and barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and end all. There's no barriers between people. When we act like this, we're acting like the world. This is how the world operates. They put things in these categories and they try to do things the way that they make sense. But this is not the way of Jesus. Put it to death. So, you can put your toes underneath the seat because this might step on your toes. We tolerate sin too much. We tolerate sin more than we tolerate bad drinking water. We tolerate our own sin. We don't tolerate the sin of other people. But there are those sins that we hang on to. And if you are a follower of Jesus, listen. You have to radically sever it. You've got to put it to death. And look at verse 6 and 7. I'm going to come back to this now. On account of these, on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked. That's the past tense when you were living in them. We don't like to talk about God's wrath. We, we, it just doesn't sit well. In fact, um, there was a study that was out there where 98, 97% of believers believe that God is a loving God and that God is good. Asking that same group of believers, they discovered that only 37% of them believe in God's wrath. Like you can't, you can't experience the love of God and God's grace and mercy unless there's the wrath of God. But here's the problem is we misunderstand the wrath of God. We think that this means like God is a vengeful, angry God who delights in punishing poor sinners. That is not what the wrath of God is. In general, the wrath of God is simply this. God giving us over to our own choices. Allowing the consequences of our decisions to take its full effect. Now, logically, that makes sense all the way until when we meet Jesus face to face, either we die and there's judgment, or when he comes back and there's the great judgment, all that kind of stuff. That's exactly what hell is, is God saying, okay, you chose a life apart from me. I'm going to let you choose that. That is the wrath of God. 
Now, it doesn't make any sense because we automatically think that wrath is fire and lightning and punishment and all this kind of stuff. Well, that's the inevitable consequence of sin. And God's like, fine, if you're going to choose that, you're going to start to live in that chaos. The problem is, is that we have such a shallow doctrine of sin. We think that as long as nobody knows or it doesn't affect anybody else, no harm, no foul, no big deal. But sin acts as a cancer. It slowly erodes and eats away, and there will be ruin personally inside and relationally. And if it's never dealt with on this side of eternity, listen, you're going to live in hell forever. This wrath is also redemptive because we don't understand the gospel until we understand the direness of our situation. Until we realize that we are dead and lost, we're slaves to sin. That's why the law is there to help us understand that we're sinners in need of a Savior. The best way I can describe this is you think of the prodigal son parable, where the father had two sons. The youngest son wanted to go live on his own. He basically asked for his inheritance, which culturally in that time was basically saying to your father, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. Give me my wealth. Give me everything that's going to be mine. And he took it and he went off to go do his own thing. The father had every right to say no. He had every right to say no. But he honored his freedom to choose that and he gave it to him and he allowed his son to deal with the consequences of that decision. And eventually that son, after the consequences of that decision came up and he was eating pig slop in a pig pen, it says that he came to his senses and he began to come home. And he was thinking that this father was going to be kind of wrathful on him and spiteful on him and go get him. And he's like, listen, I no longer deserve to be called your son. Just treat me as a servant, all this kind of stuff. But the father, as we know, which is a picture of God, is out there waiting and longing for his son to come home. And when he sees him, he runs to him, embraces him. His son's about to give this whole line. Father, I'm sorry. He's like, you're home, you're alive. We're going to throw a party. Give him a robe, give him sandals, put the ring on him, kill the fatted calf. My son, who was dead, is now alive. Folks, that's what it means that God's kindness leads to repentance. In Romans chapter 1, it says that God gave them over. That's God's wrath saying, you will reap the whirlwind. If that's what you're going to sow, if you're going to choose this life of earthly desire and sexual sin and greed and anger, you will reap it. God will not be mocked. And that's where redemption comes in. So, I want to end with three things. One, we need to get serious. We need to get serious in dealing with sin. Okay? We need to get serious, serious, serious with dealing with sin. The church years ago used to be good with confession, but today we struggle with it. We struggle with vulnerability. We struggle with authenticity. We struggle with love and acceptance within a community. We are told in the Bible to confess our sins to one another. The reality is we are all sinful. We all have our struggles with these earthly desires. We all have them. 
right? It's, it's like that old axiom, you're only as sick as your secrets. You need to get these things out into the light. You need to allow God's grace begin to renew you and to sanctify you and to change you. You need to live out the new creation that is already yours. You need to get serious in dealing with the sin. That's why the line is said, put it to death. Don't play with it. Don't entertain it. Don't put it on the shelf. You put it to death. So listen, please hear me. If you struggle with any of these sins that we talked about this morning, find me, find Nima, find Chad, find Don, find someone on staff, find a small group, confess it. Share it. And even if, and even if you're at this spot, you're like, I don't know if I really want to be done with it, you be honest and don't deceive yourself. You've got to be honest. The second thing is we need to get serious in living out the truth of who we are. Some of you are still in this spot where you, like, yes, you understand you were saved by grace, but some of you are still in a spot where you're still trying to prove something, where you're still trying to earn something by being a certain way, by acting a certain way, by being good enough, by dressing in the dress, like doing all those things. Like, listen, you've got to let those things go. You act out these things because of who you are, not because you're trying to earn or to prove something. Some of you just got to let go of the shame and the guilt of the past. You've been forgiven. It's done. It's wiped clean. Walk forward. Get back up and you run that race. And last, allow God's grace to train you. This comes right out of Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2 verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace trains us to live a godly life. Here's the best way I can describe how this works, how God's grace trains us. Um, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. Okay, um, best way I understood grace was when I would confess a sin to my wife, and she would still love me. Husbands, you know what I'm talking about? Don't, don't leave a brother hanging here. Come on. <laughs> when you confess that sin or that thing that you were afraid, and you realize that as you confessed it, it hurt them, it was hard, but they still chose to love you, they still chose to forgive you, and that gave you the confidence to do it again when it happens again. It's the same when it comes to with God. You've got to confess that sin and allow his grace to come in and to heal you and to wipe you clean. And when you do that, your trust grows. You're like this, I can come into the light. And then you start to realize, I don't want this. I want this. And he begins to train your desires and your passions. So church, as we close this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. This is the opportunity for us to remind ourselves of the gospel. Belief determines behavior. Communion is a gift that God gave us to remind us of what he did for you.
Think about that for a moment. And the words that we're going to read in a little bit, when it talks about his body being broken, it says, for you. For you. His blood was shed for you. So that you could live this life. So wherever you are at this morning, I don't know if you're like, oh my goodness, I, I, do, I, I need to confess this. I need to get this out. You know, there's some things that the Bible tells us about communion, about examining our hearts. This is the opportunity to do that. So if there is sin in your heart that deals maybe specifically with sexual sin, greed, or anger, or lying, this is an opportunity for you to come before the throne of grace boldly and confess that sin. He understands your condition. He understands your weakness. He understands all of that. And you're going to find him quickly ready to forgive you. Some of you might need to reconcile with another brother or sister. Okay, I want you to hear this. If there's an issue that you have with another brother or sister in Christ, maybe there's bitterness, resentment, or maybe you're withholding forgiveness, I want to challenge you to let the, pace, the plate pass you by and to not participate in communion until you have reconciled. It's an important thing. Because if we take communion, we're saying, God, thank you for forgiving me while I am choosing to not forgive them. That's hypocritical and an insult. So this is the opportunity for us just to examine our hearts and it's all out of grace. God loves you so much that it's like, hey, this is the time, confess that, put it to death, receive the forgiveness, get back up and move forward. I wanna pray for us. And Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, your word is alive and active and it cuts right to the heart. Lord, I thank you that you don't let us sit in sin. You don't let us sit in old patterns and behaviors, Lord, but you understand our condition and, and you move us and you compel us by your love and by your grace. So Father, I just pray in this time that you would give each and every one of us the courage to confess to you the sins that we know we're hanging on to. Even confess the fact that we might not want to kill it. Lord, and if that's where we're at, if anyone's in that spot where they're like, I don't really want to kill it, Lord, I pray that you would give them the desire to want to kill it. Whatever sin that is. And Father, I just ask that in this time, you would overwhelm us with your love and your faithfulness. And Father, if there's any of us in this room that needs to go and reconcile with a brother or sister, Lord, I pray that you would give them the conviction and courage to let the plate pass and to reconcile. 